All right, we're going to start in Romans 12, but we will pretty quickly head to John 17 and spend the bulk of our time there. Uh, I guess I'll set that up there as my, my trusty metronome prop, and I will have this here uh, as well because my voice is still not quite there. Better than it was last week, but still not quite, quite there. We are continuing, actually finishing our series this morning, Finding Rhythm. We've been looking at what it means to follow Jesus, the paradox of our faith, how God often calls us to do two things that seem to be uh, opposite, but called to do both of those things, and how that can be very hard for us to process and hard for us to understand. He can call us to do these things that seem to be virtual opposites. So we've looked at the idea of how we are called both to wait and to pursue, how we are called both to feast and to fast, how we are called to be content and to be restless, and then last week, how we are called to be childlike, but also be mature. And for all of these, what we have said is that we should pursue these wholeheartedly, not, not half-heartedly. God does not call us to be mediocre Christians. He does not call us to mediocrity, uh, not, not to find balance between those two things. That is not the idea that God has there either. We're not supposed to find the balance of feasting and fasting. We are supposed to do both with all that we, uh, all that we are. Does, God doesn't call us to live balanced lives. That is a worldly philosophy designed to enable you to be kind of a generalist in this life, to kind of like sort of do everything sort of okay. And that is the, the mantra of the world is if you can just find some balance, if you can just be balanced, then then you'll find happiness, and everything is, is found in, in, in resting your, your, your life perfectly on that, that fulcrum of balance, and that is the elusive place of happiness, just finding that. And what, what we've said is we reject that wholesale. God does not call us to balance lives at all. Instead, uh, what he calls us to is to be fully committed here. The world says don't be a fanatic, don't be... Uh, don't be a fanatic, be balanced. Don't, don't pursue things with all that you are. Pursue things with a, a, a level of decorum and a level of understanding where you look like the rest of the world does. You don't stand out. And what God calls, or what God says is that is absolutely not how it works. That instead we are not to be balanced. We are not to do things half-heartedly. We are not to do things in a way that is rational and sane. Instead, we are to be absolutely sold out to Him and to His glory. All of our life on the table. Romans 12, 1 says it like this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your true worship. A sacrifice laid on the altar for God to do with as He pleases. This is is our calling. There is nothing balanced about that. The point of the sacrifice is that it was presented on the altar in order to be consumed if that's what God chose to do with it. This series is about how to pursue these different aspects of, of following Jesus uh, while, while maintaining that mindset of lives laid on an altar. And what we've said is that all these aspects happen in rhythm. And that when life goes astray for us, it's when our spiritual and when our, our spiritual lives begin to, to spiral and we sort sort of start going out of control. It isn't because we're balanced, 
but instead it's because we are stuck. We are the, the metronome that is just stuck and isn't, isn't following the clicking pattern. Instead, we, we just get stuck on one side and we don't have the rhythm of life, the cadence of life to make us keep going. And I said in the first week that this often happens because we can get so hung up on the process of being a disciple that we miss the idea that being a disciple has rhythm and we lose the rhythm. We overemphasize the process and we underemphasize the rhythm. This morning, our topic is going to continue uh, this idea of rejecting balance in favor of pursuing wholehearted devotion to Jesus, but I'm going to approach this one just a little bit different than I have all of the others uh, so so far. So far, I have taken two opposite ideas and shown how they are both essential parts of, of following Jesus. Today is a little bit different. And what I've basically got is a two-part sermon with an with a, a, a application that will bring them together. All right? So I'm going to need you to work with me. You're going to have to kind of track with me and, and, and do the work. You cannot be a passive listener this morning. You're going to have to come along with me. And so what I want to do is I'm going to take one idea, one force, one principle, and I'm going to show how it has, a, 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 has, has two wildly different impacts on our life. And then in the second part of the sermon, I'm going to take one phrase, which feels like it might fit this theme of opposites, but really it just needs to be better understood. And then once we understand those two parts, then we will come to this idea of rhythm and how one thing should lead us to the other. So, so it's really two sermons with one, I would say it this way, one all-consuming, paradigm-shifting, life-defining, church-propelling Christ-exalting application. So how's that for like, like just setting myself up for failure, right? This is where we are going. An all-consuming, paradigm-shifting, life-defining, church-propelling, Christ-exalting application. So y'all up for that? You ready to go on this ride? You ready to do this? Uh, all right. So I know I'm up for the application because God has been, on so, in some ways, with these two different things, working on, on my heart with this very specific idea for a couple of years now, and, and, and then as I prepared this, and this, this second part kind of came into clarity for me, God has really been wrecking me with it for the last couple of weeks now. So I'm going to see if I can bring you along, uh, and you can kind of catch the vision too. So we need to get to work, because we've got a lot to do. I read Romans 12.1 just a second ago about being a living sacrifice. Romans 12.2 will serve as our first principle that we will look at this morning. Think of this as, as two principles, this sermon, two principles that stand alone, but joined together, which is where we'll go at the end of this sermon, uh, they form kind of a cohesive way of thinking about our lives and our mission. So this is principle one, Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed. Now, don't go looking for the rhythm there. Well, transform, conform, how do we work together? That's not how this is going. You're not going to find it. This is a pretty straightforward command that Paul writes here to the church in Rome. We'll get to the rhythm part later, but right now, just focus on this one idea. We all know this principle, and the way that Paul sets this up, it, it, it sounds as if we have two kind of neutral choices before us. Either be conformed by the world 
or be transformed by Jesus. And we simply need to choose. And we just need to choose wisely, right? When we read those and we hear the word play that goes on there, conform, transform, and, and we hear what is being said there, I, the, the assumption is Paul lays out two choices. You choose which one your reality will be. Conformed by the world, transformed by Christ. All we have to do is pick the thing that's going to shape us. It's as if we are the clay and we are carefully selecting our sculptor. We get to say which one will form us. Here's the problem with reading that verse that way. That is not how it works at all. That is not how it works at all. It's not that simple. I'll tell you a story. Valentine's Day, 1981, in northern Pennsylvania, there was a boy named Tom Dombowski that was uh, Dombowski that was playing with his cousin in the backyard of his grandmother's house. He's playing in the backyard, and as they began to play, they kind of noticed an odd smell. They kind of noticed like something's not right back here. But he's 12 years old; like they're just out there playing. It's February in Pennsylvania. I assume it's probably pretty cold, but they're just they're playing around. And as they as they played, they began to notice th- this smell, and then they 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 they, they they began to notice like a, a crack that had begun to form in the backyard of their grandmother's house. Uh, he was playing with his, his older cousin who was 14. And, and as, as they noticed it, as quickly as they noticed it, the, the ground began to give way underneath Tom's feet. And in a matter of seconds, he had gone from playing in the backyard with his cousin to, to falling into a pit that, as best he could tell, had no bottom to it. He was on his way into the bottom of this quickly developing sinkhole. He reaches up, grabs the, the, the root of a tree that is there, and hangs on for dear life until his cousin can run over, pull him up, and pull him out of this pit that is about to suck him out. Hot steam is spewing out of this thing. It sounds like something out of a, out of a, like a dystopian uh, movie. But his, his older cousin, Tom, pulls him, or uh, um, what was his name? I can't remember the older cousin's name. I don't know if I have it in here. I can't remember his name. Anyways, he pulls Tom out, and as he pulls Tom to, uh, to, to safety, they kind of look around, and, and they realize, wow, that was really close, and where did my grandmother's backyard go? Like, why is there this giant hole with this steam that is, that is pulling out? This hole had nearly consumed him. But here's the thing about that sinkhole. It, has, it did not develop overnight. In fact, what they came to find out is that its origin came almost two decades prior to that. You see, in this town of Centralia, Pennsylvania, uh, there, there was a, it, it was a town that was built over coal mines. Now, I mean, we're here in Jefferson City. We know what it's like to be on top of, of mines. But this is built over coal mines that had been long abandoned since the, uh, the early 1900s. They had kind of mined them for all that they were worth, and they had been long uh, uh, abandoned. Uh, at, at the very least, uh, like the, I think the final batch of coal came out of there in the, in the early 1950s, and this was in 1981. But as they began to kind of figure out what was going on, what, what they were able to determine is that in May of 1962, 19 years before Tom's sinkhole opened up, 
the landfill had moved a, a giant pile of trash over to a place where a strip mine used to be. And the point of moving it over there was so they could uh, incinerate this trash. They could burn this giant pile of trash. And then as it, once it burned, they would be able to, uh, to, to th- that land would be cleared and, and they could do whatever, uh, whatever with it. But as they burned this massive pile of trash, they managed to put that fire directly in the strip mile, directly on top of uh, uh, a crack or a hole or something that had access to the mines below. The vast caverns of now empty mines that had been stripped, which still had coal in there, but, had not, but, but not enough to where you would want to continue to mine it. And so basically what happened is that, that landfill set the abandoned coal mine on fire. For 20 years, that fire had burned underground virtually undetected. Now, they had gone back and they'd been able to, to, to realize some things that they probably should have noticed uh, before. For instance, there's a, a story about a guy who was checking the temperature of the, the gas tanks at the gas station. And when he pulled out the, 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 the temperature, of course, you obviously want to keep those cool. You don't want gas to get super hot. The, the gas at the gas station, those tanks that were buried below the ground, was close to 180 degrees, which is not where you want gas to be uh, in a giant tank that was under there. But not much more. That was about a year prior. Nobody had really done a whole lot to check into that, which kind of blows my mind uh, just a little bit. But it was virtually undetected, this fire that was burning underneath the ground. There had been warning signs. Vegetation had been dying. Nobody could, could keep a garden going in town. Sinkholes, a couple of other smaller sinkholes had been opening up. There had been some sickness in the town, but, but no one realized just how bad this fire had gotten underneath the town. And it had been for two decades, silently working, day and night, transforming the town while no one noticed. And no one did a thing about it. Everyone just got up, went to work, went to school, went to church, went to ball games. They just did their thing. They lived life every night, every day, every winter, every summer. They did their, they, they did their lives. And every time that they, 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 just think about this, every time that they laid their heads down to go to sleep, underneath them, there was a fire raging that was doing its work of transformation underneath that town. And no one knew. For nearly two decades, constant heat, constant gases, constant destruction, constant transformation. I'll show you a, pic here, a picture here. So on the left is what the town looked like in 1981. On the right is what it looks like today. Everything is gone. They've demolished the buildings. They didn't burn down. They demolished the buildings because they had all become unsafe because the ground under them was so unsteady. All the foundations had fallen apart. Every building in the town today has been completely condemned and torn down. You can see the trees that are there that were once, uh, once uh, growing and vibrant in the early 80s, uh, still alive. Now all of that vegetation is gone. It is all destroyed. There is nothing that is left there. The town's condemned. The zip code for the town has been completely removed from the United States Postal Service. All property has been purchased uh, by the state. Everyone has left with the exception of five people who refused to uh, leave the town, and they still live there, but there is an agreement that when they die, 
their family will transfer that uh, property over to the state, take money from the state, and no one will live in this town. And that's because right now, as you and I stand here, as you, you and I speak, that fire is still raging underneath that town. It is still burning today, still transforming, still killing everything that is above it. There's another picture here. I'll show you this, this next picture. So this is the, the road going into town. Uh, people have taken to graffitiing the whole road. You can see the trees that are, that are dead. Is it, it is a complete picture of desolation. The town is completely wiped out. So why do I tell you that story? It's because that is exactly how the world is doing its work on you today. It is relentlessly shaping you, molding you, altering the very ground you walk on, and it's all happening while you go to work, while you go to school, when you go to bed, when you go to church. It's happening when you watch a movie. It's happening when you watch TV. It's happening while you're on your computer. And perhaps in a more efficient way than has ever been done in the history of humankind, it is happening through social media and the algorithms that are built to shape us. It is a fire that never stops burning. It's burning when you see it. You know, every now and then, you know, figuratively, there's a sinkhole that opens up in our culture where, where everyone looks at it and they, says, they say, oh, that's not good. That's a, that's a bad thing, right? So, so you talk about like suicide rates uh, um, among, among teens and those that, that use a ton of social media and everybody will look at that and they will say, oh, that's bad. That's like the sinkhole opening up and people say, that's bad, but then nobody goes on to say, okay, what is actually causing this? Nobody goes on to say, oh, there's a fire burning underneath our feet that is transforming us, that is, that is molding us, that is shaping us. For the most part, though, it all happens out of sight, out of mind. Constantly burning. And for the most part, whenever the sinkhole opens up in our culture, we just go around to the other side of the house and we keep playing. We don't even bother to investigate what the cause is. It took nearly 20 years for that town to, to know what was happening right underneath their feet. It took another 20 years after that for everything to die and to realize that the town was lost. That's how it works in this world. Constantly shaped by a fire that was burning before we were even born. We could do like Billy Joel song right now. We just keep going with that. This fire that is constantly raging that was there before us and it will be there long after we are dead, constantly doing its work. I heard a pastor named John Tyson quickly becoming one of my favorite guys to, to listen to, cultural commentator. And he talked about it this way. And a lot of this comes from the book Beautiful Resistance. If you want a great book to read or one to do in a group, that would be a a, a fantastic one. But he talks, about, he talks about this idea of how we are constantly being shaped by the culture, and he, and he, talks, about it, he talks about it this way. Imagine being, uh, 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 imagine being in Rome. You are a, you are a new Christian in Rome. You, you, you kind of sneak away to a house church that is meeting, very much illegal. You're not supposed to be there. 
You show up at this house church, and this letter from Paul has just arrived. And everyone is very excited to get a, a letter from the Apostle Paul to teach them how to do, how to do, uh, how to do church and, 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 and about who Christ is and about the mission of Jesus and, and, and to instruct them. And, and this letter begins to be, be read. And then you get to this part here in chapter 12, and you read the instruction that says to present your body as a sacrifice. And then you hear, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So imagine you're in Rome and you hear that, you're meeting at someone's home, and then after you're done, you, you take the Lord's Supper together, you pray together, you bless one another, and then you kind of go out the back door of this home that you're meeting in, and you begin walking back to your home. And as you begin walking back to your home, you're, you're walking by statues of Caesar. You're walking by statues of other gods that are being honored. You're walking by temples that are all around you, that are, that, are, that are erected in order to worship these God. The idols are being made in the street uh, that, are, that, are, that are for you to take into those temples as you worship. You hear the Greek philosophy that is being discussed by the, the educated uh, that, 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 are, um, that, are, that are there on the hill, and they're talking. You, you pass by, 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 by brothels. You see the banners hanging that are there praising the Pax Rom, uh, Romana and the glory of Rome. And, 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 and you see all of these things, and then you get home, and you process everything that you've seen as you've walked along the road, and as you look around, and you start to ask the question, how do I keep all of that? from shaping me. If I'm being conformed into the image of the world and that is what you pass on your walk home, how do you keep all of that from shaping you? And then the question comes, how has it already shaped me? I have given my life to the way, to following Jesus, to following after this Jesus whom I've never met, and I'm trying to be transformed into his image, but, but I'm 35 years old, and I have been conformed to the image of this world for 35 years by all of these things I've never even noticed before. And the answer that Paul gives is you have to renew your mind. You have to identify the lies. You have to hold up the counterfeit to the real thing. And Paul says, identify all of these things, these cultural things that have been shaping you. And then don't be conformed to those any longer. But instead, be transformed into the image of Christ. We have to see that whether it's the city of Rome or our Instagram feed, this world is a formation machine. And it's more efficient at it today than, it, than even the great city of Rome was then. This world is really good at shaping you. Really good at it. You see, we don't get to pick the sculptor. That's not what Paul means when he says, don't be conformed, but be transformed. Don't be conformed by the world, transformed instead by the renewing of your minds into the image of Christ. He's not saying, pick Jesus as the one who transforms you. What, what he's trying, what, what, that, that's not the paradigm. The paradigm is that when you were born, the environment was already there from your first moment. 
where you are being made into the image of something other than the one whose image we bear. So when Paul says, don't be conformed, but be transformed, he's making the point that we are already deformed. And our task is to pursue Christ in such a way that we are first a new creation in Christ, and then second, to be shaped or to be conformed into the image of Jesus. Now, Romans 8, 28 and 29 tells us that that is our destiny. We are predestined to be conformed into the image of Christ. We will be conformed into his image. But until that day comes when we are fully formed, it is our task to be transformed more and more into his likeness. We don't get to pick our sculptor. From the moment you arrived on this world, on this, on this planet, from the, the, the moment you began to have your first thought that you don't even remember, you were being conformed. Those, those kids that are in the nursery this morning, your kids, they're already being conformed. Those kids that are going to, those kids that are, that, that, that are, that are, that are going to, to, to Jeff Middle School, they're being conformed. Those kids that are going to Lakeway Middle School, they're being conformed. Those kids that are in your home and you have isolated to the max, they're being conformed. It's constantly burning underneath our feet. It never stops burning, ever. And then John Tyson asked this this question. I heard this on a podcast two years ago, and I, I honestly don't think I've stopped thinking about it since. And it's the question that I would put to you. Is the great quest, the holy obsession, the vision for your life to have Christ formed in you? I'll ask it this way to myself personally. Is the great quest of my life, is the goal of my life, have I oriented everything or in my life? Have, have, have I made it the goal, the, 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 the vision for my life where I am pursuing with all that I am this idea of being conformed into the image of Christ, that Christ is formed in me? Regardless of what you do for God, I'm not asking what, what it is that you do. I'm not asking what your ministry is. I'm asking, is your life, is your mind, is your heart consumed by that vision and that pursuit? Because Paul says it should be. That should be your obsession in your life. I love that, that he uses that word. Being conformed into the image of Christ. You must be transformed from what this cultural force that never stops shaping, never stops burning, never stops destroying has already made you. Now, we'll talk about what that looks like here in just a minute. But in your notes, just kind of put, put, put a pen right there, like put a mark right there. Say that's, that's the first question, the first idea. Christ formed in you, you being made into his image to be like him. Is your, is your mind, your life obsessed with that pursuit? So that's, that's principle, principle one. I know that's a lot. We could probably do a whole sermon, just make the application right there and run. But that, that's principle one. So let's quickly move to part two. And then what I want to do is bring part one and part two together. So I want to look at this idea of 
the world. And I want to set it in context of how we should respond to the world. And I want to do it by taking a phrase that, that kind of on its surface sounds like it, it might fit this paradigm we've been in this month of like two opposites. Uh, but I want to fix the phrase just a little bit to make it better represent what Jesus actually taught us. Terminology becomes theology, uh, and this little cliche has, I think, created a theology that, while in some ways it might be a, a little bit helpful, I think ultimately it misses the mark of what Jesus had in mind when he prayed. So what I want to do is I'm going to read from John chapter 17, uh, and we're going to look at Jesus' high priestly prayer that he prays on behalf of his disciples and ultimately on behalf of us. John 17, verse 9. I pray for them, and I am praying for the world. Or, uh, this gets so wordy, so just bear with me here. I, am pray, I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, because they are yours. Everything I have is yours, and everything you have is mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by your name that you have given me so that, they might, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I was protecting them by your name that you have given me. I guarded them and not one of them is lost except the son of destruction so that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now I am coming to you and I speak these things in the world so that they may have joy completed in them. I have given them your word. The world hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I am not praying that you would take them out of the world, which I think that is fascinating because that's fully what I would expect Jesus to pray, that he would take us out of the world. But he says, I am not praying that you would take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them so that they may also be sanctified by the truth. We'll stop there. We could keep reading a lot more, but this will get us going in the right direction. And so the phrase that, that comes out of this prayer, the, 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 the kind of Christian cliche that comes out of this prayer, does anybody know, know, know what, the, what, what it would be? So... All right, come on. You, I, you, can, you, can, you can talk in this part. What would it be? In the world, not of the world. Right? This is what we're taught as Christians we are supposed to be. In the world, but not of the world. Jesus says as much many times, several different times in this little prayer. It seems to fit this series, a paradox of sorts. How can we be in the world, but not of the world? We'll get to the rhythm part of this here in the end, but that's not, not the, the point I want to make here. Uh, just yet. What, because I think we need to clarify this phrase just a little bit and why I have never felt all that, that that phrase, in the world but not of the world, is all that helpful for me. You see, when we say that, in but not of, that would be the shorthand, we're using Jesus' words, but I don't think we're exactly communicating Jesus' message. Here's what I mean. In saying, in the world, not of it, what we're essentially doing is, is painting, uh, is using those two phrases as, as shorthand for, for two different pictures of living, two different opposite uh, ideas. That, that, that one way of living, the in the world part, is, a, is, is kind of uh, 
a way for us to live against the backdrop of a lesser or an evil way of living, the of the world part. And so, in effect, what you're doing is you're portraying two different types of living that kind of set up two different ends of the spectrum. You can live the, the in the world part, which means that, that, that you're here, but you're not of the world, okay? And so those two things kind of get set opposite of one another. And we're given those, and those are painted as two different ways to live, two different ways to go about life, two different ways to view our purpose here on earth, in, not of. And a huge chunk of Christendom has created a way of living that is built around that paradigm. We say we want to be in the world, but we want to be of the world. This, this is why we have a Christian subculture for everything. This is why uh, th- this was essentially the, the, the Christian bookstore business model for decades. If it was sold at a Christian bookstore, it probably, usually, was marketed around this idea. That there is a Christian world and there is a non-Christian world. Everything from the fact that we need our own Christian movies to somehow we need our own Christian breath mints. We need, we need our own version of, of everything. We need the Christian version of everything. We need our in-the-world, not-of-the-world version of everything that the world has to offer. So if you're like me, this probably became your default way of viewing the world. If I heard a song that I liked, if I heard music that I liked that was on the secular radio station, then my first question was, I wonder if there's a Christian band like this. I wonder if there's a Christian version of the Dave Matthews band. I can't tell you how many times I searched for something like that, right? I needed the Christian version of the secular thing. Give me the, 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 the Christian version. That's what I want. And I, I could spend the, the next hour here talking about all the implications that that has created for us in our politics, in our view of people, in our view of culture, in our view of entertainment So many implications flow out of this view. It is the source of so much of the stuff that is happening in our political world right now. We need a Christian version of everything. This is the root of the idea of the the hot topic of Christian nationalism right now. We need a Christian version of government. We need the Christian version of everything. And where we can establish the Christian version of it, then we will be able to be in the world, but not of the world. Here's the thing about this worldview. This idea that there are effectively two different ways of living, one is good, one is bad, it is woefully inadequate to deal with the realities of sin, suffering, truth, beauty, art, the mission of God himself. It is woefully inadequate to deal with the things that the Bible tells us we must deal deal with. It reduces our lives to where everything is a black and white choice about whether things are of the world or not of the world. And there is a huge part of me that longs for that black and white living again. A huge part of me that longs for that. But I have seen too much sin. I've seen too much of this world. 
I've seen too many beautiful things and too many awful things for me to believe that that simple reductionistic view of life is what, God, what Jesus had in mind here in John 17. That view of, of one is good and one is bad completely, it, it, it gives no respect to the fire that is always burning underneath our feet. Which is why when I read John 17 today, I, I, I just I view it differently than I used to. You see, Jesus isn't setting up two completely different ways to live and then saying, choose wisely. Jesus is, is praying a mission into our lives in this prayer. He is not praying a worldview that says, don't be the baddies. He is praying a mission into your life when he prays this in John 17. This might be a bit of a, a crude analogy, but it's the best that I could come up with as I, I, I thought about this. He, he's a bit like the dad teaching his kid to swim by throwing him in the, in, the, in the pool when he's four years old. Just like chucking him in the pool and saying, time to swim, kid. Let's see what happens. But, but he's not on the deck of the pool saying, in the pool, but not of the pool, son. Just in the pool, but not of the pool. That's not what he's saying in, in John 17 because here's the thing, that's no help to the kid who's trying to figure out how to stay uh, above the water. Here's what I think Jesus is, is saying and doing in, in this prayer. Instead of giving us a paradigm of two ways to live, he's showing us the reality of what is there in the world, a world that is not our home, a world that is not made for his disciples, but by default is not friendly to those that follow him, a world that is set against them and is constantly working to form them. And he's saying, I don't want to take them out of that place. Well, if, 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 if the world was such a, an awful place, and he was saying in but not of, why would he not, say, why would he not just say out but not in? Like, just, just retreat. This is an option put forward by a lot of people. There was an option, just, there was a, a, a book written, it's called the, the, the Benedict Option, came out just before the last election. And the whole premise of the book is that Christians should quit trying to do anything in the world at all, and instead they should pull back, pull into their own insulated uh, uh, communities. They should, they should live as though they... They should live out the ethic of the Christian life, but they should do so in an insulated way. And so the premise is out but not in. Why would Jesus not pray that for us? It's because that is not the mission that he has for us. He doesn't, he doesn't pull us out of the world, but instead he sends us into the world. Not as sacrificial lambs to be sacrificed at, our, at the, 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 the altar of our culture. But as those equipped with the truth of the person of Jesus and the word of God. And that as we go, truth in, in our hearts and in our minds, that truth sanctifies us and it steadies us for the unsteady waters ahead. And that as those that are being transformed and that are that are that are that are seeing Jesus being shaped in us 
We are sent into the world. So he isn't the, 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 the dad on the pool deck saying he'll either learn how to swim or he'll sink to the bottom and then he'll learn how to swim. That is not how Jesus is sending us into the world at all. He's the dad on the deck that says, you've seen me do it. I've shown you how to do it. I've walked with you as we have done it together. It's not easy. You can't just go over to the side and hang on to the side and coast along. But you can do it because I'm showing you and I've taught you. And whenever you do it, he says there's joy in that when it happens. You see kids playing at the pool. They're having all kinds of fun. Because they've learned how to swim in the pool and they have the freedom of being able to do that. And Jesus says, I have taught you how to do this in the world. Jesus' prayer isn't about making good choices. Make Make the end but not of choice. It's not even about two conflicting ways of living. It's about what it looks like to live on mission in this world. We are not of this world. Not because this world is so icky and gross and sinful. We are not of this world because Jesus tells us that his kingdom is not of this world. We are fundamentally citizens of another kingdom. Remember how I painted that, that, that picture of a of a, a, how a citizen of Rome is formed by all that that is around him. This is the same idea. Just as the citizen of Rome is formed by all that is around him, we as Christians should be a citizen of another kingdom that, that is formed and shaped by that kingdom. Citizens of heaven, the kingdom of God, and we have spent our entire Uh, our entire lives walking around, at least our entire new creation lives, walking around in that kingdom and that it has shaped us just as this world shaped us before Christ. And it shapes us into the person of Jesus. John 18, just one chapter over, Jesus is talking to Pilate. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. And then in Philippians 3, Paul says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. This is why churches and discipleship strategies that operate on an idea of of creating a Christian version of the world's idols will ultimately destroy people's souls. Because we are not a Christian version of anything this world has to offer. We are called to be radically different. The longer I live, the more I listen to Jesus, the more I listen and and read Paul, the more I look at my own life, and the more I look at this world and this culture, the more convinced I am that if people aren't telling you to chill out, calm down, back off, find balance in your life, then you probably aren't following Jesus the way that he called you to. We are citizens of a different kingdom. We are not of this world. So instead of saying in, but not of, maybe we should start saying not from, but going to. Or not from, but sent to. 
I know it's a small change. In but not of sets, a, sets up a culture war of two, two, two warring ideologies. But I don't think that's what Jesus has in mind in John 17. We are not from this kingdom, but we are sent to this kingdom of this world. Can you imagine how different we would view the world if that was our philosophy? Not primarily seeing the world as an other culture to war against, but instead that they are people still beholden to this world's values and idols and lies. And we are sent not to destroy them. We are sent to, or, or, or even, even called to withdraw and to hide from them. Instead, we are sent to care for them, to minister to, to teach, and to make disciples of them. It's such a fundamentally different way to view another person. Not a culture war to fight, but a culture to redeem. Not a view born of anger, but born of compassion. Not a view born of self-righteousness. Not a, not a let me show you how it's done, but a servant-hearted let me show you how to love because I have seen it in Jesus and now I want you to see it in me. What a, what a different posture to take to the world. Not, not, not in but not of as in, hey, listen, I, like I'm here, I'm kind of here, but I can't like, we can't hang out, we can't be friends, we can't be around one another, we can't, I can't listen to anything you got to say because you got to listen to what I got to say. But instead, it is walking up to a person and saying, listen, man, I understand, you've been formed since the day you were born. Let's just talk about it. Let me tell you about what I have learned about Jesus. Let me tell you what I have learned about truth. And let me tell you about how it has begun to shape me into something totally different than what this world has been shaping us in since we were born. I've, I've been there, man. I have, I have worshipped at the same altars you have. I have loved the same idols that you have. It's still part of who I am because I am still being conformed into his likeness. I understand what it is that you are de dealing with and what it is that you are working through. Let me just tell you where I found something better. And it's not of this world. It's of a totally different kingdom and a totally different king. How fundamentally different is that approach to someone? I think that's what Jesus has in mind in John 17. Sent into the world, a world that is no doubt hostile to his kingdom. Sent into, not from, but sent into. Look again at John 17, verse 18. Jesus says, as you, the Father, sent him into the world, I also have sent them into the world. As Jesus was sent, so too are we. He didn't fight a culture war. He came to serve. John 13, 34, I give you a new command, love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you elect the right person as president. Not what he said. If you don't do this, 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 and this. Not what he said. He said, if you love 
one another. Matthew 20, 25, Jesus called them over and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. The ones of this world rule, lord it over them. And those in high positions act as tyrants over them. That's what the kingdom of the world looks like. It must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give up his life as a ransom for many. Not from this world, not of this world, but sent into it. So now, that's idea number two. So let's pull them together. Back to our driving question, the one that will not stop rolling around in my head. Is the great quest, the holy obsession, the vision of my life to have Christ formed in me? If the answer is yes, and I believe that's what every single follower of Jesus is called to. If the answer is no, I don't see how you can rightfully call yourself a follower of Jesus. If the answer is yes, then you must be transformed from what this relentlessly burning, shaping, conforming, deforming world has made you into the shape of Jesus. And there are so many ways that we could talk about how this happens. But I just want to talk a little bit generally here. But I, I firmly believe that the best way this happens, that we are, we are not conformed to the world, but we are transformed into Jesus. I firmly believe, I have, I have quite literally bet my life on this, that the best, this best happens in the context of a Christian community, what we call church. Which is why church cannot just be about your preferences and whether or not you like church this morning. Whether or not you like the music this morning. Whether or not the band was killing it and the preacher was funny this morning. It's too fundamentally important to our lives to, to, to be reduced to, to, to something so small as our trivial preferences in this world. The question is, will that church help form you into the image of Jesus? The answer is yes, then be a part of it. If the answer is no, then find a different one. And that includes this church. If this church does not help you be formed into the image of Jesus, you're wasting our time and we're wasting yours. Find a church that will help make you more like Jesus. This is the mission that will propel the church forward. This is the mission that will sustain the church in a culture that is increasingly hostile to somebody who does not bow the knee at the idols of this culture. If the church pursues anything else than trying to shape you into the image of Christ, then it is falling short of its calling. But more than what church you go to, the question sh this, the, this question should drive 
your life. It should drive who you are. It should drive what you do. It should drive who you marry. It should drive your, your, your job. It should, drive you. it should drive every decision that you make. It should change how you wake up. It should change what you believe. It should change what you value. It should change what you pursue. And it for sure should change what you worship. It should make you look a little bit crazy to the world and maybe even a little bit crazy to yourself. It is an all-consuming vision and one that we should spend our lives in pursuit of. And here's the thing. You cannot pursue this on your own. You cannot pursue it by knowing more. You cannot pursue it by spending your life on self-improvement and self-help, you become more like Jesus when you love others like Jesus. You become more like Jesus when you serve others like Jesus. Especially those that are the least like you. Friends, we are, we, we are not... We are not from this world, but we are sent into it. And our message is not one of war, but one of kindness and grace and mercy and forgiveness and love. Because that is the message Jesus brought. That is the holy calling of John 17. That is the calling of Romans 12. And that is the, that is the story of the entire Bible. And it is my sincere hope and prayer that you get to live out that calling to not be conformed to the image of this world, but transformed into the image of Christ. And then that transformed image then sent into the world to tell them about the person who is transforming your heart. into. That is how that works. That is the rhythm of the Christian life. Transformed and sent into. Transformed and sent into. Back and forth, back and forth. That is the cadence. That is the cadence. That is how we live. Transformed into his image, not conformed into the world, and then sent out into the world with that mission. That's the rhythm. That's what we're looking for. The rhythm is not retreat, pull back, don't, don't, don't get near the, 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 the icky people. Don't get near the people who disagree with me. Don't get near the Democrats. Don't get near the Republicans. Don't get near these people. Don't talk to these people. And then just hang on for dear life until you get to the end. That is not the rhythm of the Christian life. Transformed. Not of this world. But then sent into it. Citizens of another kingdom. That is what we do here at Providence. At least that is our goal. And I, I hope we, we get to do that together for the rest of our lives, spending our lives in that pursuit. Let's pray. Father, we are so unaware of all the things that continue to shape us, that burn under our feet right now as we speak. We are so oblivious to the, 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 the schemes of the evil one that seek to, to, to kill, steal, and destroy. We are so blind to the forces that, 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 that shape us, that mold us, 
that harden us, that deform us. Father, give us eyes to see this. Give us Give us an awareness of those pressures around us. And then, Father, pray that you would transform us into the image of Christ. And we know that we are predestined to that if we are in Christ. But, Father, I pray that it doesn't, it doesn't wait till the end, but it begins to happen right now in this place, in this moment that you make us more into his likeness, and that as we become more like him, we love more like him, and we live more like him, and we are sent just like him. Father, may that be the mission of our lives, and may our lives be spent on nothing less glorious than that. Christ's name that we pray. Amen.